in this series, 15 Hymns Every Christian Should Know. And I said last week, uh, the last couple of weeks, we've gone through this and realized that there's a kind of a common theme uh, in these in this series that we've run into, and that is a theme of hope. We said that that a promised Lord means a present hope from Haggai chapter 2. A newborn Lord means an assured hope from Matthew chapter 1. A crucified Lord means a saving hope, Galatians chapter 6. A living Lord means a living hope. And he is a living Lord. And then a ruling Lord means a joyful hope. We looked at Philippians chapter 4 last week. And verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. This week, we also come back to this theme of hope, but we look Looking at it from a slightly different perspective this morning, if you couldn't tell from the hymns we started to sing, we're focused this morning on the coming of Christ. And so what does that teach us? Well, we have this truth. A coming Lord means a future hope. A coming Lord means a future hope. There is something for us to look forward to. We have something to look forward to as believers. This is an important truth that I want to try and help you understand this morning and try to remind you of. Coming Lord means a future hope. So I need the kids to pay very close attention, and I'm going to have you guys read with me. So Nikita and Callie and or Chloe and everybody um, up here, would you guys read this together? Okay, can you read it together? All right, all of you together, nice and loud. Okay, let's do it. Ready? Let not. read those verses before? You ever read those verses before where Jesus said that he said, I'm going to go away? But he said, I'm going to come again? This passage is really important. Jesus told his disciples not to worry. Because he was leaving them in order to prepare a place for them. But he promised, he promised that he would return for them someday so they could be with him forever. This promise of Jesus is really important. This is the promise I want to focus on this morning uh, for a few minutes. Every follower of Jesus Christ receives hope from this promise. Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving for good. I'm leaving so that I can prepare a place and come back for you. He promised that he would physically and eternally um, provide a place for us to be with him, our Savior and our King. But you know, it's interesting, Jesus spoke those words. He spoke those words nearly 2,000 years ago. And I don't know about you, but 2,000 years seems like kind of a long time to me. And after 2,000 years, I still don't see any indication of just when exactly he plans come back like he promised. We wait 2,000 years we've waited and he still hasn't come back. I can remember when I was a child and you probably can remember this too but as a child I can remember the excitement of Christmas. 
You'll remember that, the excitement of Christmas time. And I can remember being so excited on Christmas Eve. Like, uh, when I was in elementary school, uh, my, my younger brother and I shared a bedroom. And I can remember one Christmas Eve in particular, we were so excited, so wired on Christmas Eve, thinking about Christmas morning, anticipating, you know, coming down stairs from, from, you know, coming downstairs into the living room where we had the Christmas tree. And we just knew when we came down that there was going to be all sorts of presents and stuff under the tree. And, you know, that excitement uh, as children, we were so excited we couldn't go to sleep. I mean, we just laid in bed and we just could not go to sleep. I remember um, we would just lay there and just laugh and laugh. And we were laughing. You know how you, when you get tired, you, you know, kids especially start laughing so hard and they start giggling and you just can't really help it. And we would laugh, and then we would kind of get control of ourselves, and all of a sudden one of us would start laughing, and then the other one, you know, we could back and forth, and we just kind of kept laughing. I remember my mother was trying to get us to go to sleep, <clears throat> probably so they could put the presents out under the tree and they could go to bed at some point. And uh, she was trying to get us to go to sleep, and we couldn't go to sleep. We were so excited, and we were laughing and giggling and back and forth. And in fact, my mom finally got frustrated. She sat outside of our door, left the door open, just sat right outside of our door with a paddle, and said, you know what, if you don't go to sleep, you're going to get a spanking. You better go to sleep and be quiet. You better stop all this carrying on. Now, I don't remember, honestly, if we got a spanking or not. I'm pretty sure we didn't, but I don't remember for sure. Eventually, we did go to sleep. I know we did. But the anticipation of it was so great, you know. And I'm sure, you know, as adults, some of that anticipation is it's different, right? We don't have the same kind of anticipation for Christmas morning as we did when we were children. Maybe as, as parents, you know, we have that anticipation for our children to look forward to seeing them get so excited about it and have that, that excitement. But, you know, usually that's a little bit different for us. You know, we have a, maybe a more measured uh, and, and different perspective. But that anticipation for children is still great, and my kids get so excited about it. I think it's important for us to remember that. But the problem is sometimes the promise of Jesus' return is kind of like that too. Now, we read Jesus' words, and maybe you do this if you read your Bible, and as you read through it, you read a passage of Scripture about Jesus returning, and, and you get excited about the prospect of being with him. But it's not the same as Christmas Eve, because on Christmas Eve we know that we can go to sleep and we can wake up tomorrow morning. And we will, when we wake up in the morning, it will be Christmas morning. And we'll be able to enjoy what we're anticipating. But with the return of Christ, it's a little different. Now we read about these promises and then we go to sleep. We wake up in the morning and we're still here. And he hasn't come back. That can happen day after day after day. And generations have come and gone since Jesus spoke those words, since he spoke those words in John chapter 14 that we just had the children read. Generations have anticipated, looked forward to the coming of Christ, and yet he hasn't come back. And as each night passes into the next day, it could be very easy for us to begin to doubt that he's really going to return. In fact, we may even begin to look around us and we begin to see the people around us and, and we, we, we see that they're getting away with sin, wickedness, there's injustice, 
And we think that maybe God has just forgotten about his promise. You know, maybe he's not really planning to come back, or maybe he was, but you know, I mean, hey, you know, who knows? It just seems like it's never going to happen. We can get discouraged about that. In fact, that's kind of what was happening to the Jewish people toward the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, if you'd like to turn there. Malachi chapter 3. If you can't find Malachi, just find Matthew, and it's right before that. If you find yourself in the middle of the Minor Prophets, just keep going, you'll get there eventually. Malachi chapter 3. We're going to see here just a little bit of what the what the, the Israelites were facing, the end of the Old Testament period, looking around at the nations around them, they were surrounded by superior nations, nations that were, that were more wealthy, nations that were more successful, nations that had greater and stronger military might. The Israelites were not independent, they, they were subjugated, uh, nation. They looked around at all these other nations, including those, the nation that ruled over them, and they recognized in those nations all sorts of terrible and wicked sins, idolatry and immorality. They looked at those same people who had rich, who were rich and had all sorts of nice things, who lived such wicked lives. And they realized they themselves had so little And the result was that many of the people of Israel decided it just wasn't worth it to try to obey God any longer. Just didn't pay off to try to live for God and try to do what was right. If everyone else around them was doing wrong and was prospering, then maybe it just wasn't worth all the effort and all the work to try and do what's right. They began to doubt They began to doubt that judgment was going to come on those people who were doing wrong. But not everyone in Israel believed that. There's a passage of scripture I'd like to look at this morning. We see a group of people who rejected that idea. They heard people complaining about how God will never judge wicked, sinful people. How God just lets them get away with whatever they want and they're prosperous and they can enjoy Everything they want, and all those of us who try to do right all end up in the wrong end of the deal. We all end up, you know, on the short end of the stick. And they, these people heard those arguments, they heard those complaints, and they rejected it. They refused to believe it. And this is the people that I want to look at this morning. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16. Michael, would you do me a favor and read this verse for us, please, nice and loud. Now this this is a really long verse, okay, for Michael to read. And this verse is very important because this verse talks about those people in Israel. They heard about all of the complaints about about how people got away with all sorts of injustice and wickedness and sin. 
Heard people complaining, saying, you know what, God, he hasn't done anything about those people. They all get away with everything they want. It's not fair. Maybe it's not worth it to live for God. Maybe it's just not worth all that hard work, all that effort, depriving ourselves of things we'd like to do. This kind of woe is me attitude and this wrong attitude. There's a group of people that looked at that and said, you know what, that's wrong. Malachi says here, they were those who feared the Lord. And they spoke to one another. We don't know what they said, because he doesn't record what they said, but we kind of can get a sense that they were disagreeing with all of the things they were hearing around them. They were disagreeing with the sentiment of the culture around them that had caved in, that had said, you know what, it's not worth trying to live right, let's just do what we please. And these people, they were rejecting that. And so what does it tell us? It says that a book of remembrance was written. The Lord caused the book of remembrance to be written. I think that's a really important principle. And so the first principle, and boys and girls, you have this in your notes. I want to make sure you get this. The first thing we see here in Malachi chapter 3 that's so important for us to understand. Here, 2,000 years after Jesus promised to return, it still hasn't come is this, that the Lord keeps record of those who fear Him. The Lord keeps record of those who fear Him. That's what Malachi 3.16 is telling us. The Lord keeps record of those who fear Him. That's how they're described. Those who feared the Lord. The Lord listened and heard them. I just love the way it says that. God listened to them, not to their prayers. Notice they weren't praying here. They were talking to one another. But the Lord listened to their conversation. He listened to the burden of their heart. He heard them. And He kept record. The Lord keeps record of those who fear Him. Now, there's a couple things that we learned from this, and I wanted to point these out. The first thing is this, that believing that God will come as he promised leads us to fear the Lord. This is also in your notes, boys and girls. Believing that God will come as he promised leads us to fear the Lord. I mean, think about it. I think the fear of the Lord here is a key phrase in this passage. I mean, those people who don't obey God don't really fear the Lord, do they? I mean, there can't be fear of the Lord if we don't obey Him. Because if we don't fear the Lord, if there's no no fear, if there's no thought that He's going to come and He's going to judge and He's going to set things right, then there's no motivation to do what's right. There's no reason to do what's right if God's never going to come and judge. And so these people in Malachi's day, they heard all this stuff, but but because they believed that God was going to come as he promised, that he was going to judge, they feared the Lord. I think this is true of us. If we really believe that Jesus is going to come back like he promised, that belief will cause us to fear the Lord. And then that fear of the Lord will motivate us to do what's right.
Now the second thing that we learn from this, we're told there in verse 16 that they were those that feared the Lord. These are the ones that the Lord listened to. These were ones who were, again, running opposite of the rest of their culture. The rest of their culture said, no, God's never going to come back and do anything. People do what's wrong. They get away with it. Nothing ever happens to them. And so God listened to them, but it also says that a book of remembrance was written before him. Now, Grace, i got a question for you. Do you think God ever forgets anything? No? God doesn't ever forget anything. If God doesn't forget anything, why would God need a book of remembrance? Maybe this is a puzzle for you to wonder about this week. If God doesn't forget anything, why does he need a book of remembrance? Well, I would suggest to you that God doesn't need a book of remembrance. He can remember just fine without it. But the book of remembrance is is symbolic. It's, it's, It's important because it tells us just how much God valued these these ones that feared him, these ones that, that ran against their culture that said it's, you don't have to obey God. These are the ones that they valued, God valued them so much that he went above and beyond what was necessary to make sure that a record was kept. I mean, I don't know if you've read this in the scriptures or other places, but it talks about the books being opened, you know, books. Why would there need to be books in heaven written down? Doesn't God remember everything? Sure. Of course, the other thing to realize is God remembers everything, but we don't. So maybe it's for the benefit of others that God is writing that down in heaven. But either way, it's not going to be forgotten. God's going to write it down. And actually, there's a, there's an important thing here I want to touch on in a minute, but, but, but this is important for us to get here. God causes a book of remembrance to be written, And so what does this teach us today? It teaches us that God knows and remembers when we delight in Him. God knows and remembers when we delight in Him. That's what the second half of verse 16 talks about. I thought this was really interesting when you read it. A book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord. Okay, so far that's what we've already read. And who meditate on His name. That's what the prophet Malachi says here. A book of remembrance was written before the Lord for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. What does it mean to meditate on the name of the Lord? Well, it's more than just fearing the Lord. Something else. Meditate on him. We've talked about this before, but but meditate has the idea of of continuing to do something repetitively. Thinking about, mulling about, focusing our attention on. In a lot of ways, to say that we meditate on the Lord is a lot like saying we delight in the Lord. Or we rejoice in the Lord, to think back to last week's sermon. That's what the idea is. It's this, it's where is the object of our focus? Where is our attention? Well, if we're meditating on the Lord, our attention is on Him. 
If we're delighting in the Lord, our attention is on Him. If we're rejoicing in the Lord, our attention is on Him. And so these are the ones, here in Malachi 3, verse 16, about whom this book is written. This book, this record is, is made. Okay. These are the ones who fear the Lord. They meditate on His name. They rejoice in Him. They delight in Him. I love how these truths here are all interconnected. In fact, maybe it's just different aspects of the same thing. Maybe we could sum that up with the word worship. I don't know. That's not in my notes, so I'm just... Maybe that's going too far. I don't know. Give some thought to that. God knows, though. You see, this is encouraging for us because... you. You could get you you could look around sometimes and you could think you know what I just am not really sure I'm not really sure that it's worth it Is it really worth it to spend my life and my energy and my focus looking at meditating on delighting in rejoicing in serving and honoring the Lord I just don't know Who's paying attention right I mean I can I can worship the Lord. I can delight in the Lord. Who even notices? What difference does it make? Well, I can tell you this. God notices. Because in Malachi chapter 3, there was a group of people in the midst of a horrible, wicked nation surrounded by ungodly people. We don't know how many this was. It probably wasn't very many. It's probably a small group. But those few that the Lord looked down on and he, and he heard their voices and he listened to what they were saying and he recognized they feared him and they meditated on him and delighted in him and he said, let's write a book. Let's keep record. This book of remembrance, you know, it's, it's interesting too because we read the scriptures we realize that the kings of Persia used to keep books of remembrance too. The kings of Persia used to keep books. Well, we, we probably wouldn't call them books. They would probably call them scrolls. But they would record books of remembrance. They, you, you may um, be familiar with the story uh, in the book of Esther of Mordecai. Anybody familiar? Any kids familiar with the story of Esther? You know the story of Esther? Remember Mordecai? You remember that one time Mordecai heard some people who were plotting to kill the king? What did Mordecai, do you remember what Mordecai did? When he heard that they were plotting to kill the king, what did he do? He went, that's right, he warned the king. And as a result, what happened? Did they, did they, did they, did they kill the king? No, in fact, the king captured the men who were trying to kill him, and he put them to death. And then what happened to Mordecai after that? Do you remember what happened to Mordecai after that? Does anybody remember? Kids are trying to think of it. Anybody else? Anybody in here remember what happened to Mordecai after that? Nico? Later in the story, eventually, but initially what happened to Mordecai after he saved the king's life? Anybody remember? Nothing. Right? Nothing happened to Mordecai. No one, 
you would look at that story and say, no one's paying attention. If you're Mordecai, what do I do? I turn in these guys who are trying to kill the king, and nothing happens. Life goes on. Months go by, and nothing happens. Those guys get captured and, and, and put to death. And guess what happens to Mordecai? Nothing. Not even so much as a thank you card. Right? Nothing. But it's interesting because later on in the story of Esther, we realize that the king can't sleep one night. You remember this? He can't sleep one night. He's awake. And he asks that the Chronicles, that's the book of remembrance, be read to him. And as they're reading through the book of remembrance, they come across a line in there about a man named Mordecai who warned the king that there was an assassination attempt. And the king says, well, what's been done for this man, Mordecai, to honor him? This is something he should be rewarded for. What's been done? And they say, well, nothing. Right? Nothing's been done. And it's such a poetic, I mean, it's such a, it's such a great instance of, of God in his incredible power using a wicked and pagan king. Because have no doubt, the king in the story of Esther is a wicked and pagan God. He doesn't know the Lord. He doesn't serve the Lord or worship the Lord at all. But God uses him to honor Mordecai and to shame the enemies of his people. Because remember the next morning, early in the morning, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, comes walking in. And the king says, hey, what should the king do for the man who wants to honor? And Haman thinks, it's got to be me. Because Haman's so proud and focused on himself. And the king says, you know, Haman says, well, he should have the king's robe and he should be led around on the king's horse. Right? And he should be led through the city and then someone should shout, this is what the king does for those in whom he delights. And the king goes, great idea. Do that to Mordecai. <laughs> I love this. It's just a great, great thing. But here we have it. This is a book of remembrance. And so this is a common thing in, in the Old Testament times. And here in Malachi chapter 3, we have a very similar thing taking place. God say, hey, write a book of remembrance. God remembers. Mordecai might have thought no one is paying attention, no one remembers, and he would be right except for the fact there was a book of remembrance. And eventually that, that book brought his name to the attention of the king, and, and Mordecai received the honor that was his due for what he had done. And here in Malachi chapter 3, these same people could look around and say, man, what is the point of doing all this for God? No one is paying attention, no one remembers Malachi here records for us that in heaven, no, there's a record. A book was being written. So God knows. He knows. He knows those, uh, rather, He keeps record of those who fear Him. But there's another point here we learn about in the next verse. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 17. Let's see. Chloe, would you mind reading that for us? Nice and long. This is the next verse. Verse 16, God says, let's make a book of remembrance. Let's write down a record of these people and what they've done. In the very next verse, he says, they shall be mine. When? On the day, he 
says, that I make them my jewels. What day is he talking about? Well, the day that he's talking about is not other than the day when he comes for them. This is the verse that William Cowper was thinking of when he wrote the hymn, When He Cometh. When he cometh, when he cometh to make up his jewels. All his jewels, precious jewels, his love and his own. That song that we sang talks about the day when the Lord comes to receive his precious ones, his jewels, for his own. That's the focus of our thoughts this morning, our attention. The day when Jesus returns, as he promised, to take his disciples to be with him. And Malachi assures us in this verse. In fact, the Lord speaking himself assures us in this verse that he is coming. A book of remembrance is written about these who fear the Lord, who meditate on his name, and he says, they will be mine. That day is coming. I am going to come and gather them up. I will take them for my own. There's two things we learn here. We already, well, this, the, the point here in this verse, the Lord owns and protects those who fear Him. This is in your notes. Okay, it's, the Lord owns and protects those who fear Him. But this tells us something, that those who fear the Lord are valuable to Him. He, he describes them as His precious ones here. Often translated as jewels, but it just means His precious ones. It's the things that are His that He owns. They belong to Him. And guess what? Because they belong to Him, they're valuable. Those who fear the Lord are valuable to Him. Harry, Iron, Harry Ironside said it this way, as they found their treasure in Him, He found His treasure in them. These people who meditate on the Lord, who focus on the Lord, whose delight was in the Lord, and the Lord says, they are mine. They're my precious ones. They're my treasure. Even as much as I have been their treasure. Now I want to say this because I need to explain this. When I say that those who fear the Lord are valuable to Him, I mean they're valuable not in the sense that He needs us. Okay? Like we're essential to Him and He has to have us, you know, or He would be incomplete. That's not what I mean. I mean they're valuable because we belong to Him. They're valuable because they're His possession. Because they belong to Him, they mean something to Him. That's what. That's why they capture His attention. That's why He listens. That's why He has the Book of Remembrance written for them. These ones who fear the Lord and meditate on His name. They're valuable to Him. That's the first part of verse 17. It talks about that come that day coming when He will come back for us and receive us to Himself. Then He says, "I will spare them." I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. See, that day that he comes back for his, to receive his own, that day is also marking a day of judgment. Because those who are not his, those who he does not receive as his own, are marked for judgment. And so that day of his return, oh, it represents a wonderful day of gathering of his people. 
but it also marks the day of judgment. But he says here, those ones that are mine, those ones that belong to me, I'm going to spare them. He considers them to be his sons, and he protects them from judgment. He considers them to be his sons and protects them from judgment. And again, I think if we stop and we look at this passage, we realize that it's very it's very easy for us, if we're not careful, to get this idea that you know what God, it, it just doesn't really it doesn't really there's no real benefit to us. It's kind of fruitless for us to serve the Lord, to be obedient to Him, because He doesn't really ever do anything to those people who disobey, anyways. But that's just not true. It's just not true that we can sin and there's no consequence, that we can do what we want and there's no judgment coming. The truth is Jesus is coming back. And so it does matter how we live today. It does matter whether we obey him or not because he's coming back and he's going to judge. It may seem like the arrogant and the evil prosper now, but they will not prosper forever. There is a day of judgment coming. We have this promise here, and this is why I love about this verse, because Malachi is trying to encourage those who are faithful. Hey, you love the Lord. He's coming back for you. He's going to take you. You belong to Him. And oh, by the way, just like a son who is faithful in serving his father, he will protect you and guard you. That's how he feels about you. Like a son who serves and obeys his father and enjoys then that protective and supportive hand of his father. But there is a flip side to this. Verses uh, verse 18 and then on to verse chapter 4 and verse 1. Verse 18, he says, Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Chapter 4 and verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor have no doubt that the day in which he's talking about, the day in which he comes to gather his own, is a day of judgment. It's a day of complete destruction for those who do not love the Lord, do not fear him. In fact, we could say it this way, the Lord will expose and punish those who do not fear him. This is the contrast for those who fear him, who meditate on his name, they will be gathered up like jewels, prized possession, protected like sons in whom the Father delights. Their works will be remembered. They are not forgotten. But those who do not fear the Lord, those who do not serve the Lord, those who do wickedly, they will be punished. There will be a separation, he talks about here. The righteous being separated from the wicked. One day it will be 
very clear who are followers of the Lord because there will be a judgment. There will be a separation, the righteous and the wicked. I read a story of a farmer once who agreed to a contest with his neighbor. His neighbor was an atheist. And he said to the farmer, I tell you what, let's plant our crops the same as always this spring. Let's plant the same number of acres. You pray to your God, and I'll curse him. Then, in October, we'll see who has the bigger crop. The farmer agreed. So they planted their crops. And in October, the atheist was delighted because his crop was larger. See, you fool, he taunted. What do you have to say for your God now? The farmer shrugged and said, God doesn't uh, settle his accounts in October. You understand something? God's word says that Jesus is coming back. That he will separate the wicked and the righteous. That the wicked and the ungodly, those who do not fear the Lord, will be punished. They will be destroyed. But those who fear the Lord, those who meditate on his name, who delight in him, will be protected. Will be gathered up as his valuable possessions. We need to believe it. See, I think the biggest problem with the Jews in Malachi's day, and, and if you, there's a lot more of the background of this on the going deeper into the word, in the word. It's back there by Albert on the table. You can grab them before you go today. There's a lot more of the background of this, but, but I think what they were dealing with was a matter of unbelief. They had the word of God. God had promised that he would judge wickedness and he would reward righteousness. He had promised that. And yet, they just didn't believe. They looked around and said, you know what? He hasn't, he hasn't come back yet. He hasn't punished yet. He hasn't judged yet. So I guess it's just not worth it. We can't count on God to do what he's promised. And they didn't believe. And because they didn't believe, they began to disobey. And we may be tempted to do the same thing today. To say, you know what, I just don't think he's coming back anytime soon. He hasn't come back, and I'm tired of waiting. And you know what, Just it's just not worth it. It's not worth all of the trouble. It's not worth trying to go against the stream in our culture and try to do what's right in the midst of a society that's going downhill. We need to believe the word of God. Jesus said that he's coming again. He may not be in a hurry. Sometimes we wish he was. But he's not. He'll come at his time. He's promised that he'll do it. We need to believe it. He didn't tell us about his return so that we could become prophecy fanatics who see signs of his coming in every supermarket tabloid headline. He told us so that we could be ready for his coming. And who are the ones who are ready for his coming? This one I thought was really interesting. Who are the ones who are ready for his coming? Well, according to Malachi 3, they're identified by several key phrases. He calls them the righteous. But he says they're the ones who fear the Lord. They meditate on him. They belong to him as his precious jewels and as his sons. They are those who serve the Lord. Think about it this morning. 
Can we rightly claim to be ready for his return if we don't honor the Lord? If we don't delight in him? If we don't belong to him? If we don't identify ourselves as his sons and daughters? If we don't serve him? I don't ask these questions so that we can look around at each other and evaluate the person sitting next to us and decide whether or not they're ready for him to return. That's not our prerogative. I ask the question so that we can evaluate ourselves. I'll share this with you as I close. John Hunter wrote a little book called Major Truths from the Minor Prophets. And this is how he summarizes this passage from the book of Malachi. God the Father has already made his son, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Our responsibility is to recognize a lordship which already exists. The proof of his lordship will be that we speak often to one another about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the substance the center, the song of our hearts. This is important. We can be like these people in Malachi's day, busily involved with a performance rather than a person. But in that day when the King of kings and the Lord of lords is seen in all his glory and majesty, the jewels that will shine in all their brilliance, setting forth the honor and majesty of our King, will be the simple souls who loved him and spoke often. You and I can be among that number. It takes no exaltation of birth or excellence of education or glamour or wealth. Just an ever-deepening desire to love him, to obey him, and to be faithful to him. Jesus Christ is coming.